Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is Larry H. Russell here. Featured columnist at CLNS Radio, familiar voice here on Celtics Beat, and of course, author of the now critically acclaimed Fall of the Boston Celtics. Thank you to all those who have downloaded the book. Your appreciation only serves as a validation. And to those still interested in claiming your free copy that you are obligated to as a Celtics or an NBA fan, go to www.clnsradio.com slash LHRbook. That's clnsradio.com slash LHRbook. But for now, we know why you're here. To listen to the number one Boston Celtics podcast on the web, Celtics Beat. Brought to you by Lynda.com. Now, on with the show. Are you enjoying your time here? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. You know, um, my teammates are great. You know, we are young. And, um, I'm, I'm kind of like an overhead on this team, which I don't like to say, so <laughs> none of y'all been I said either. But, uh, you know, it's great. It's great. Like, the way we interact with each other, you know, it's great. You know, it's one of the funnest teams I've been on. That was Celtics guard Marcus Thornton after Wednesday night's big win against the Atlanta Hawks. Cap, yes, an undefeated week for the Boston Celtics. That was Marcus Thornton. I'm Larry H. Russell. We're back once again on a good note. We got a great guest, former slam dunk champion, two-time NBA title winner with the San Antonio Spurs, and now one of NBA TV's lead analysts, Brent Barry. He's back. We'll be in him. We'll go around the league here at the All-Star break a little later on the show. A lot of storylines in this compelling and fairly unpredictable NBA season, so I'm looking forward to getting it down with him. But first things first, everybody, Celtics get their biggest win of the season. Like I said, undefeated week, right? 1-0. and They only had one game. It was against the best team in the conference, the Atlanta Hawks. They took them down at the buzzer on an Evan Turner game winner after coming back for as many as 19 down. Real nice way to head into the All-Star break, and it's really nice to get a sense that the players on the team feel pretty good about themselves and that, most importantly, they enjoy being here, it seems like, at least... At least from what I've heard from uh, Marcus Thornton, you know, you just heard a raw clip from the Celtics locker room on Wednesday after that big win. I'd like to thank Jared Weiss and the rest of the Garden Report team at CLNS Radio for the clip. You know, to get more raw, uncut clips from the Celtics as well as opposing locker rooms as well as press conferences, log on to youtube.com slash CLNS Radio and subscribe to get those as well as your Garden Report postgame shows delivered right to your browser. So thank you, Jared. Thank you, CLNS. And thank you, Boston Celtics, for hanging in there, grinding it out through some tough times. You know, as I discussed with Steve Bullpett on last week's show, and I agree with this incoming sentiment 100%, there were numerous instances this season where things could have spiraled out of control. I mean, there, were, there was a ton of bad losses early in the year. Big blown leads, a lot of frustration with individual players, and there were numerous instances where the locker room could have just become lost and the environment could have become toxic and engulfed this this whole team and not sabotage not just this season, but sabotage the individual growth of key players on the Celtics roster. And that's what really has been the entire purpose of year two of the Celtics rebuild. 
And that's what most sensible observers realize when they take an honest step back from this team from time to time and look at it through the lens that way. And that's what team owner Rick Grossbeck, as well as Rich Gotham, the Celtics president, confirmed to all of us in my column, which ran on CLNSRadio.com last Sunday. That as well as this being a period that we're in, which, by the way, year two of a rebuilding from scratch is still, that's still the preliminary stages. But to build a positive culture and winning environment, even if much of the roster may include players who may not be around when this team is contending for championships again. So that's really how it's best to develop players on your team as well as sell your entity to those around the league and outside of it. So it's great to see, you know, a veteran player like Marcus Thornton, who, by the way, I have to mention, is a free agent at the end of the season, is probably playing for his last serious contract in the NBA to buy in the way he seemingly has and to legitimately feel good when all things considered. You know, this still has been a tough season for players, coaches, fans, the media, to sit here at the All-Star break with a team 11 games under 500. But as I've stated so many times, it's it truly is a credit to Brad Stevens and his ability to implement what he has been implementing. You know, it's so evident, in my opinion, you know, that pr- my primary fear uh, coming into this season, going into the season, was the roster was far too imbalanced. It was far too congested that it'd really be unfair to Coach Stevens and would tie his hands in terms of allotting all players playing time and, and soothing over egos. But once that was fixed, and, and Danny Ainge certainly did so with that array of trades over that three- to four-week period between the middle of December and the middle of January, which obviously kicked off with that Rondo trade, you know, once that was rectified, you know, it's allowed Stevens to focus more on coaching rather than managing egos. And it's also allowed these players to settle in, not worry about the other guy on the bench, and develop as a team, as a unit, and as individuals. Just obviously, I mean, case in point, look at the ball movement on this team offensively. How much better has the ball movement been as soon as Rondo is shipped out, and especially in these last few weeks? I, I personally think it's it's very good, and I, it's an enjoyable brand of basketball. Look at the defense. Look how much it's improved since the start of the season. I can't emphasize that enough. This was the worst defensive team in the conference at the beginning of December and now efficiency wise I believe they're up to 14th that's in the upper half that's in the latter half of the league that's incredible to me that a team can improve that much being where they are and still in the standings and then obviously look at how much more effective they are particularly offensively at the end of games I guess they couldn't be any worse than what they were in November with Rondo at the end of games so they, it, was all, it was like they only could go up, right? I mean, they can't blow 20-point leads every single game. But they, they've gotten much better. And not only are they not blowing these leads, they're holding on to them. And now is Wednesday night, we actually saw them close the deal on a comeback. Obviously, we've seen this team get down by 20-plus points or 15-plus points numerous times throughout the year. They make a valiant comeback, and it's, oh, they almost won. They just came up just short. And better luck next time, guys. But as we all know, a lot of good teams that build – Big leads against not-so-good teams like the Celtics. They let them back in the game a little bit, and then at the very end, they'll step on their throat once again. Now we're actually seeing the Celtics you know, come back at the end of these games here. And that Atlanta game, uh, that was a great way to go into the All-Star break, and it was great to actually finally close the deal against not just any team, obviously the best team, arguably the best team in the NBA, and far and away the best team in the conference here at the All-Star break. In my opinion... 
I mean, a big part of that has been the veterans, be it a guy like a Brandon Bass or a Marcus Thornton who are producing, who are in the rotation, who are making differences in games, or even those who haven't contributed a whole lot to the stat sheet, such as Tayshaun Prince, who really only had that one real, you know, real big game numbers-wise against Utah. And even Gerald Wallace. Yes, you know, Gerald Wallace. Don't underestimate what these guys can contribute, not just to a team, but to young players individually and, you know, team-wise. Case in point, I suggest everyone to go check out a story Steve Bulpett had in the Herald this past Thursday, which was the day after the Hawks game, where he quotes Prince himself. And, and I want to read this on air here. He, he says, to this is from Tayshaun Prince after the game, what I see is a lot of inconsistency. Obviously, that goes with the young team, but I think the one bad habit that we have to stop is when guys miss shots, their energy just goes flat. And you know me, the teams that I've played on in my career, when we missed shots, it was the total opposite. Our defensive energy picked up twice as much, and it's not like that here. Me and Gerald Wallace has, have emphasized that to the guys. Obviously, we know it's not going to change overnight, but we have to keep instilling that in them. I cannot stress this enough, people. That was Tayshaun Prince, by the way. I cannot stress this enough, the value of veterans and that kind of leadership and what it means to young players who haven't really gone through the wars, especially a guy like Tayshaun Prince, who has gone through the wars, six straight Eastern Conference Finals, the Detroit Pistons, an NBA champion in 2004, nearly did it again in 2005. And yes, you know, I know it sounds like a guy like Tayshaun Prince won't be here for the long haul. And in my opinion, I, I think that's kind of sad because as I stated on last week's show, don't just dump these guys, be it Prince Bass Thornton, don't just dump these guys for the sake of dumping them and certainly not for the sake of losing more games and getting more ping pong balls. Because having this kind of advice and philosophy around young players who have yet to develop the necessary calluses and scars that are usually needed to produce in pressure moments is crucial for their growth as a young player and in turn crucial for the growth of the Celtics as a team during this rebuilding phase. So as I stated, I mean, if Danny Ainge can get either value or save a decent amount of money on the cap sheet by flipping away or flipping these guys like Bass, Thornton, or Prince. I mean, that, that's one thing. That's obviously the sensible thing that you need to do for the franchise and, more importantly, for the owners who are paying the bills. But I'm not going to adhere to this archaic train of thought that if you're not going to compete for championships in the NBA, that you might as well be terrible and that these guys like Bass and Thornton are helping this team be in the dreaded NBA middle. You know, sadly, this is still a belief amongst a portion of fans and, and even members of the media whom I you know, have a lot of respect for. And, you know, one member of the media even referred to the Celtics being the eighth seed. I'm a big fan of referred to the if the Celtics got the eighth seed, that it would be, quote unquote, a disaster. I mean, I really don't want to get, I don't want to get into that. We all know it won't be a disaster. Listen, if the team was, as Danny Ainge said to Asherod Blakely a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, that if. They made the playoffs, you know, and they hadn't really improved from last year or there was minimal improvement. You know, that's one thing. If this team made the playoffs at 32-50 and 50 and got thrashed in the first round by 20-plus points every game, I mean, that doesn't really serve a purpose. But if this team comes back after the All-Star break, finishes the season playing 500 basketball or better, and wins 36, 37, 38 games for the season, which would mark a double-digit win improvement from last year— I mean, I, I say go for it. I say, I, and, and they go into the playoffs with, 
some momentum and the team's feeling good about themselves. And maybe they play Atlanta in the first round. And Jared Sullinger goes off for, say, 20 points and 12 rebounds in a Game 3 win. And the Celtics do win one game in the, in the series. And they play a pretty competitive series. You know, that just looks good on the franchise and looks good on the players that you, you, the commodities that you have on the team in case, hey, you ever want to make a big trade. So, I mean, I hate to do this really and call members of the media out, but I, I, I should... I'll use someone whom I like. Uh, obviously, I was watching the Garden Report on CLNS Radio last Wednesday. I, I couldn't help but just sort of stop and listen to hear what Julian Edlow had to say in the show. But, you know, because we like each other, I'm going to actually use him a bit as a pinata. And this, I got this clip off of YouTube.com slash CLNS Radio where the guys were having a discussion of whether or not the Celtics should go for the playoffs. Check it out. <laughs> the playoffs are have a real chance of happening and that depending on your outlook is a good or bad thing yes. you know their draft pick may not vary that much whether they're the eighth seed or one of the last couple teams out of the playoffs you know it depends do you want that playoff excitement or do you want those last couple ping pong balls that maybe you can just bounce into the number one spot somehow and win that lottery you know pick pick which way you want to go pick but being in the middle pick your poison because being in the middle in the NBA is the last place that you want to be all right, you know, how, how many times does this uh, need to be pointed out that with the amount of flexibility that the Celtics have, that they will not get quote-unquote stuck anywhere, let alone the so-called dreaded NBA middle, the so-called dreaded NBA purgatory. You know, maybe I have the advantage of hosting a weekly podcast where my appraisal of the state of the franchise or the recent events that have transpired with the Celts is done over the course of a week where that allows me to sort of exhale and relieve my train of thought from as much of the emotions as possible. You know, as, as opposed to others who work the games, who are there every night for the home games, you know, they analyze the, you know, every single game. They analyze the situation on a day-by-day basis, and the emotions of what just transpired following a game are still there. So that's going to cause more excitement, or in this case, you know, cause more worry over the team, as is... Oh, God, I hope this team continues to sustain this good play once they come back from the All-Star break. Or else, if they don't, they might as well just stink up the joint and try to get as many ping-pong balls as possible because, oh, oh no, they might be in the NBA middle. You know, This goes out to everybody. This is not the Boston Celtics of Xavier McDaniel, Purvis Ellison, Dominique Wilkin, Sherman Douglas, drudging along to bring the Celtics to some 35-win 8-seed. You know, a team that had zero young talent, aging players, a salary cap that was capped out for multiple future seasons, no other draft choices besides their own or other assets on the team. Now, that was a team that was stuck in the middle and legitimately could not wiggle their way out of it until a few seasons later when all those contracts were expiring and the team did have to necessarily tank a season to get a high pick to add real young talent to a team that desperately needed it. This is a Celtics team with a cavalcade of draft choices, salary flexibility to sign free agents or absorb players in trades, as well as a young roster with improving and talented players and with a coach that you expect to be here for a long time. So them this year moving up 
from last year where they were one of the worst teams in the NBA to the so-called dreaded NBA middle is not a team miring itself in mediocrity for years to come. It's taking the necessary steps of improvement and development for, for a young team. You know, unless you're adding a LeBron James, a Tim Duncan, a David Robinson, a Larry Bird to a terrible basketball team, teams just don't jump from all these 20-win seasons to 50 to 60 wins overnight. It's a process, and so far, the process this season for the Celtics, especially these last few weeks, once starting out in that West Coast road trip, that game in Portland, has been good because that improvement is now visible to not just the coaches and the people inside the organization, but to us outside the organization. You know, remember last year when people were saying that the Raptors, after they traded Rudy Gay and everybody thought that that was a deliberate plot for them to tang for Andrew Wiggins. You remember them saying that the Raptors were messing up by winning too many games and, and being a 45 or 47 win division winner, whatever they were last year, how that was a bad thing. Or even the Hawks signing a guy like Paul Millsap last year, how that was pointless because all it did was put them in so-called mediocrity and they had a 38 win season last year as opposed to bottoming out, which is what you need to do in the NBA. Now look at them. Now look at last what they those teams did last year and how that has helped them this year. You know, I, I saw Evans Clinchy on CelixBlog.com this past week, the, right before the Hawks game, as a matter of fact. He wrote a really nice piece, you know, basically saying, geez, why can't the Celtics do it like the Atlanta Hawks are doing it? And it's funny that Evans mentioned it, and not just him, you know Evans himself, but there are other people who who are saying it. You know why? You know not just Celtics fans, but fans of other teams saying, "Well, yeah, geez, why can't we do what the Hawks are doing?" It, it seems a little easier said than done, doesn't it? But it's funny because when I was talking with Rich Gotham in our conversation for the feature piece that I ran uh, this past Sunday, he specifically mentioned the Atlanta Hawks to me. He specifically mentioned that it's okay to have a roster with flexible and interchangeable parts because that allows you to install the philosophy that you want to install. And it gives also gives you opportunity to improve the team to make that major strike in a transformative trade because you have a roster that's more appealing to free agents and individual players that are more appealing to other teams who may th- believe that it's advantageous to trade with you. And you're also doing this while fielding a competitive team. I mean, it's right? It's win-win-win, isn't it? I guess it's obviously a little easier said than done to just do it like the Atlanta Hawks, but that's just clearly the way to go, just as long as you're maintaining that flexibility and you're not doing what the Brooklyn Nets are doing, or not doing, but did last year where they went all in to get a 45-win roster and capped out their team for the foreseeable future. Because that's obviously that's not what the Celtics are doing, and that's not what Danny Ainge plans to do. And I think we can all safely say that because we know that Danny Ainge gets it in that aspect, and we know that the Celtics have an ownership that's willing to be patient because they're fans themselves, and they share the same sentiment that the diehard fans do where it is championship or bust, and that's the path that they're willing to take. So that's what we hope that we're in the early stages of now. Just take a deep breath, enjoy watching these games, enjoy, more importantly, enjoy watching this team make progress because they now are making progress. I believe they're turning a corner. I know Rich Conti had a really nice piece on CLNSRadio.com, which ran on Wednesday, regarding the Celtics, that they are, you know, not turning the full corner, but definitely making the, you know, the necessary improving steps and making this rebuild look a little more clear than what it did, say, back in early December when Rondo and Jeff Green were here. I definitely suggest that you check this out. 
And I definitely suggest just please, please enjoy the rest of the season because I think it's pretty impressive in its own right that this Celtics team has found a way to put a, a fairly enjoyable product on the court in terms of their ball movement, in terms of their team defense, because, hey, you know, this is still a team that is uh, 20 and 31 at the All-Star break, I believe. But this is, uh, it's been a, it's been a good season. It's not full season, but the, these past, this past month has certainly been pretty good for the Celtics, but it's definitely been a, a very good NBA season. And I strongly suggest, Celtics fans to sort of sort of broaden the landscape in that. Definitely check it out. There's a lot going on in this league this year. A lot of storylines. The season, it's been the most unpredictable season I can remember in a long time. First time in a in a in a while where I'd say the MVP is up for grabs. Both conferences are up for grabs. You know, there's not that Miami Heat, the team that everybody's gunning for this year. It's clearly wide open. And that's a complaint that many have regarding the NBA of, oh, the NBA, you know, you know who's going to win. You know who's going to be there. There's only a couple teams that can win it. That's definitely not the case this year. There's an array of teams that can win the NBA championship. And even that, as I said, it's very unpredictable in both conferences. I mean, we all know what the Warriors and the Hawks are doing, but there's no, there's, you cannot tell me that those teams, you just put them in stone, are going to be there in the NBA Finals this year. In fact, I think both teams have a less than 50% chance of winning their conferences. So it's definitely not this year of, all. Oh, you know, it's too unpre- it's too predictable. That's, that, that's not the case this year. We'll be talking that as well as many other pressing NBA storylines with longtime veteran NBA TV's very own Brent Barry after the break right here on Celtics Beat powered by lynda.com. Hi, this is Sean Backey from CLNS Radio and the Evening Score Sports Podcast. Kickstart your new year and challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 4,500 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, or even find a new job or improve upon the current job skills in 2015, lynda.com has something for everyone. Now, if you sign up today for the free 10-day trial by visiting lynda.com slash CLNS, You'll get the benefits of unlimited access to every course on lynda.com. You'll also get access to view tutorials on tablets and iPhone and Android mobile devices, as well as access to new courses added every week. Some of the courses that were recommended for me uh, include analyzing your website to improve SEO, viral marketing, and web analytics fundamentals. Do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for the free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash CLNS. Go ahead. I challenge you to learn something new in 2015. Hey, this is Larry H. Russell here, featured columnist at CLNS Radio and executive producer of the number one Boston Celtics podcast on the web, Celtics Beat. And now, author. That's right, author. My debut book, Fall of the Boston Celtics, How Bad Luck, Bad Decisions Brought the Mighty Celtics Empire to Its Knees and Ushered in the Dark Ages, has already been called the definitive account of the infamous doldrum period in Celtics history. You think the Celtics are struggling now? Well, you've got quite a short memory. 
Get the inside story from executives, general managers, staffs, players, media, fans, you name it, as I take you through a time in which how the Boston Celtics fell from the shining city on the hill and became entrenched in purgatory. And you'll see why. That's Fall of the Boston Celtics, available on clnsradio.com on January 5th. And you can't wait for the release? Well, tweet the hashtag, Fall the Boston Celtics to me, at CLNS underscore LHR. That's hashtag, Fall the Boston Celtics, at CLNS underscore LHR. And we'll pick one lucky follower and hand out a free copy on the January 4th episode of Celtics Beat. And now, on to your regularly scheduled programming. Welcome back in. It's been a long time. My good friend, Brent Barry, longtime NBA veteran, two-time NBA champion, now a serial analyst at NBA TV. Bones, good to speak to you again. You forgot bad golfer. No, no I wouldn't say that at all, considering the yeah, crap yeah. that I've seen over the years. Are you kidding me? You had three birdies that yeah. day. I think so. I, I had to play well. I think, I think John Barry was moving somewhere. So. He actually had a good oh, run boy. that day. But I definitely yeah, he's, the, he's the, the kind of trash that I've seen over the years. I wouldn't say someone who uh, three birdies and then uh, there were a lot of pickups, but that's fine. Better than uh, better to pick up than you know guys that lie in ten in the middle of the fairway. It just you know is has is obsessed with playing out their ball. You you've got the courtesy yeah. enough to pick up, pick it up and you know get moving and make sure a round gets done in four hours. I don't want to slow. I don't want to slow any people from Boston up. No. Lord Lord knows you only get to golf for a couple months a year. Yeah, I know, <laughs> especially with that, what we got going on right now. But uh, you're down in Atlanta uh, most of the time uh, with the NBA team. Most of the time. Yeah, most of the time, especially now that you're traveling now uh, doing some games, which I think is awesome. But uh, so obviously the big story of the NBA this year is as is, is bizarre as it is, not the Cleveland Cavaliers, it's the, the Atlanta Hawks. And I guess this has to be the most annoying question in, in history, sort of. But uh, I'm going to ask you. Can the Hawks win the championship? It's only been asked a million times the last month. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's an interesting question how the the, the season begins, and the Atlanta Hawks are thought of, uh, you know, as a team that's probably a, a four or five seed team. Questions about Al Horford and what he's going to bring coming back with with his injuries the previous year uh, to the pectoral muscles, both of them, and uh, and then how it is that they're going to assimilate him to what Atlanta does. And then you look at what they were able to do last year under coach, Bud in the first year of the system, and that was pushed the number one seed Indiana Pacers into the seventh game where there legitimately was concerned that at least for Indiana fans, that this Hawk team was going to take down uh, really a Pacer team that was having some, some issues at the end of the season. But what Atlanta has been able to do this year, I, I tell you, Tommy, has been remarkable um, that Bud's been able to get deeper into the playbook. He's been able to tap guys on the bench. They built up the roster over the offseason, knowing that Horford was coming back. They wanted to get some wing defense in there, so they grabbed Cephalosha and they grabbed Kent Bazemore. Um, they continued to work Dennis Schroeder as the backup point guard to Jeff Teague in there. And, uh, you know, they rely on Mike Scott coming off the bench to score. So they're pretty dangerous. And on top of being dangerous, they're pretty smart. And I think that that's the thing that uh, mystifies people is you look up and down the, the roster and you don't think that the talent uh, isn't superstar level. But I'll tell you, it's a collection of, of 
seven or eight very good, very intelligent players who have a very good coach in front of them, and the results speak for themselves. Yeah, it's almost like they're sort of the defensive version of what the Sacramento Kings were back in the day when they had Weber and and Peja and Vlade, and they won more, obviously, you know, playing team-oriented offensive ball. But Atlanta seems to be doing so defensively. And, I mean, I guess I'm going to answer my own question. I mean, I, I think that's good enough to win the championship. I just don't think that they'll, they'll have enough to really to beat LeBron in the Eastern Conference and then, obviously, whomever they play in the West. Yeah, I think the Western Conference is what I concern myself with more because the matchups, of course, dictate the, the playoffs. It always comes down to the matchups. But to think that the Atlanta Hawks, given what they have shown during the regular season, um, how they never really play outside themselves. And one of the interesting things I saw, Tommy, during the streak where they won uh, all those games, the 19 in a row, and then ended up taking that loss was the fact that there was not one player for the Hawks that scored 30 points during the 19-game stretch. There was not a Jeff Teague night for 38. There wasn't a Kyle Korver 32-point uh, night, 10-3-point shot made night. It wasn't Horford going off. So the one thing that I appreciate about the way Bud has done what he's done this year for that team is that it's all within their capabilities. They play within themselves, and they do it quite well. And even the game that they lost to the Pelicans that broke their streak, they had a game where they didn't really get beat by the Pelicans so much as they beat themselves. And that's always a sign of a very good team is that if you can play within the parameters of what the coaches set up, if you can never look like you panic and they, they really haven't at any point, um, then, then those are signs of a very confident team that believes in what it is that they're doing. And that 48 minutes of basketball gives them enough time to either uh, recover from poor play or gives them enough time to dictate their will on another team. And they're, they're very, very good. So, I don't know why people don't think they could win the Eastern Conference when that kind of team ball over the past couple of years has been celebrated. Yeah, it's interesting that we are on the topic of talking you know, about this you know, and celebrating the team ball and watching it. You know, it's interesting how the casual observer or the typical NBA detractor that there is out there nowadays, you know, one of their complaints about the NBA is, oh, it's too individually oriented. And yet, you know, if there's an NBA Finals with, God forbid, two small market teams that play these team-oriented basketball, be it offensively, defensively, or both, you know, and there's no LeBron, or there's no Kobe, and I hate to say it because you played in one yourself, the Spurs-Pistons in 2005, which was a great series, very unpredictable, had a great game, that great game five, but the ratings were disastrous. So, I mean... Yeah, the style of that play, um, geez, nine years ago, wow. Um, the style of that play between Detroit and San Antonio was worlds apart from what it is that we see now by the player movement, the ball movement, and going back even further to your, your comment about the game being more individual um, or kind of a hero ball isolated play. It, it really is. It really is not that way. Um, currently. I mean, I remember when I first came into the NBA and, and I remember working out with NBA players, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s before it is that I, I had a chance to play in the league and was in college and back in the Bay Area playing with Chris Mullen and Tim Hardaway during the summer and, and Weber, guys who were around for the Warriors, and uh, talking through some of the things that happened on the NBA court. And the rules were always dictated back then. You couldn't have 
2.9 seconds off of the weak side defensively to come into the lane to disrupt what it was that NBA basketball was in the 80s, which was purely a two-man game. They would put the two best players on one side of the floor, and the other players had to be within touching distance of their man, and the best players in the world would operate one-on-one against the defensive guy and beat him and score, and three guys would be standing around. And I think that there's been such a monumental shift of uh, movement-style offense, uh, passing-oriented offenses. Um, you've seen the success, obviously. Everybody wants to point to San Antonio, but really Boston's success. Uh, when they won the championship, the way that Rondo moved the ball and moved those star guys around, they didn't hold on to the ball to get things done. And then the Laker teams in the triangle offense, it was always predicated by pass, pass, cut, cut, and the pass dictated movement. There's been a huge shift in this being a more team-oriented passing and player movement offense. So people who go back to that archaic argument about it being an individual game, I I just, I don't buy into that. How much do you think the advanced analytics that have sort of revolutionized the game over the last seven, eight years have to do with that? Because... Well, I mean, they. I really say that that put, does put an emphasis on that now that we have so much data to analyze, you know, what's best for yeah. teams. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that uh, in, in the first few years of, of the analytics movements, what it does, did was it broadcast where your team's huge deficiencies were. So even though scouts and GMs would go out and give the eye test to players, um, there was maybe some things in terms of combinations of players that GMs weren't able to uh, – you know, forecast moving forward as to how that player was going to play with this player and what we were going to get out, what were the benefits. You might see some of the intangibles that a guy had and maybe some of the skill set where, well, this guy's a, a great shooter, but he's, he's not a good cutter. This guy's a, a good team defensive player, but not a good on-ball defensive player. Well, now they have ways to be able to uh, break down the data when there's combinations of players and all those glaring mistakes that your team has you can find ways to adjust your roster and make sure that those deficiencies maybe don't become strengths, but that they get hidden in ways that make your team a little bit better. Uh, we're kind of coming off the wake, Tommy, of, of Charles Barkley's comments on TNT, um, you know, a, a Thursday. And, uh, you know, Charles made comments about how analytics have no place in basketball and it's just guys that, uh, you know, never played that wanted to get jobs in the NBA. I think he's, doing a massive disservice to uh, what it is that teams now know are keys to successful runs, not only in building your roster, but in terms of winning championships. And if you don't think that San Antonio Spurs have used analytics in a way to make their team better, or that Mark Cuban didn't do that to help his Dallas team win, or that the Boston Celtics didn't put together that roster. Now, talent, you always need talent. But to think that they don't use the numbers to benefit their team and use that as a tool to be better. Uh, I mean, you got to get out of the cave. Yeah, I was definitely. I really wanted to bring that up. You know, you you got me rolling there with Barkley's comments, and then I obviously wanted to mention the Spurs because the Spurs have definitely been, you know, a leading example in this. I mean, you were playing with the Spurs. I think it was your last year, like '08 or something. Was that there? Yeah, very the visible. Season. Was that very visible there as a player, or was that just you know you were just sort of doing what you're you know told as a player? But that stuff was behind the scenes. I, I mean, I saw it more visible when I was with Daryl Morey in Houston the next year, which was my last year playing. Um, uh, both Daryl and Sam Hankey there, and the way it was that there was uh, you could kind of 
see how it was that the analytics team would operate. They would be around a little bit more. You actually saw faces and you, you knew what some guys were doing. Uh, where in San Antonio, all those things were behind the scenes. You know, you just dealt with, the, with Pop and the assistant coaching staff and your practice regiment and, and uh, what you had to do on a daily basis. But you knew that they knew something was going on. And I knew in Houston for sure that they were trying to do things to adjust the roster and to get things uh, across to the coaching staff as to what might work, what might be uh, better combinations. Those things were there in front of you. But make no mistake about this. There aren't any teams that have their analytics groups that come up and confront the players or are visible uh, to the players interacting with the coaching staff that I know of in the league. This is all done, you know, behind the scenes, pouring over game film, pouring over data, uh, and, and every team uses them differently. And they report the things to either the general manager or the coach, if he wants to, hear directly from them in a way for them to use that information the way that they'd like to. So it's never really out in front and in, in, in the open that way. Yeah, I know. It's interesting now because the cat is, you know, it gets become more and more out of the bag as the years go, goes on. But I don't want to make a sweeping generalization as well. Being here in Boston, I've always noticed that those Cambridge, those MIT, those Harvard types, they like to be behind the scenes anyways. But there's only, there's only so much hiding they can do now. But I know you're on a tight schedule, so I, I got to get to this before we get you out of here. Uh, the Golden State Warriors, I want to call your father's speech at the what was it, the Chris Mullen retirement ceremony, I think a turning point in NBA history, I guess, right? He's got to be feeling pretty vindicated. Oh, boy. He's, that was embarrassing that night. That was crazy. Um, yeah. I, well, embarrassing in that this was Chris Mullen's retirement, and my dad had to grab the mic and, and get up and, and actually say something to the crowd who was booing Joe Lacob vehemently for recently trading Monte Ellis away, who was a, a crowd favorite. But since that time, the Golden State Warriors have done some pretty good things. Um, so I don't know if that's the moment, Tommy. I would hate to pin it on that moment because that night was supposed to celebrate Molly and, uh, and of course, his incredible contributions to the Bay Area and to the Golden State Warrior team. Um, but it's been remarkable, the, the moves that they've made, uh, obviously, the Mark Jackson moving on from Mark and uh, looking at trying to get Steve in there and Steve taking the opportunity and stepping away from uh, avoiding real work, which is being an analyst, which is what I do, and actually diving into the head coaching world. He was ready to do it, and he took on <clears throat> a, a great team, a great team that had a foundation that, that Mark Jackson had, had helped out with, of course, um, but is doing some fantastic things with that roster and uh, has them in great position this year to make a real legitimate run in the Western Conference. Real quick, do you think that they're probably the team that's going to be coming out of the West? Um, they, they certainly can be. Uh, there's so much that can happen in the last, you know, some teams have 30 games to go after we get through the all-star break. So, you know, an, an injury, you know, Blake Griffin gets a staff infection and everybody's thinking the Clippers could fall out of the playoff race. Anthony Davis goes down for New Orleans, you know, with a little shoulder ding, and you're thinking, wow, they can't recover uh, if he misses any sort of time. Oklahoma City's got to play, you know, darn near perfect basketball to get themselves in a position where um, they're going to make the playoffs. I mean, I know they're, they're tied with 
Phoenix now in the eighth spot, but I, so many things can still play out, but you got to think that the Golden State Warriors and still the San Antonio Spurs will have something to say in the Western Conference with regards to who's going to come out. All right, I want to get you out of here on this last question. You've been doing a lot more traveling this year, more calling of games, although you seem to get the late game on TNT, which is, I hate to say it, a little too late for me on the East Coast here. But <laughs> That's so. okay. But, That's uh, okay, I mean, is that providing a different perspective from you for you, or you, you, you already know your, your gig around basketball? Yeah, no, no, that's uh, been fantastic. Um, it's something that, that that's really something that I would I love to continue to get the opportunity to do. Um, it's nice of the people at Turner Sports to give me that opportunity. It's a little strange, I tell you. I haven't called games uh, a ton, and so learning the way that you interact during a broadcast with uh, Kevin Harlan, who's a world class, um, top notch, you know, top five, maybe top two announcer in the game. Um, and being on the court and being able to see the things that you see and, and get in some of the perspectives that you want to get in. I mean, I'm no Brian Scalabrini, but I'm trying my best to, uh, uh, to provide some analysis during those games and, and keep it, keep it centralized to what's going on on the floor. You know, I'm not there to talk about the, the state of the union or, you know, what's going on um, with every other team. There's, there's so much happening and try to stay engaged with the game and, and just offer up my opinion. I, I'm not right or wrong, but just offer up my opinion as to how I see the game being played out. And I think it's an, an awesome opportunity. Brent Barry, perfect way to get you out of there on that. Strongly suggest to our people to give Brent a follow on Twitter. It's at Barry, a three. The man is a man of the people on the social media, actually. I actually consider him a philosopher. Call it, I'll call him <laughs> the, the Marcus Aurelius of Twitter, Brent. How about that? Wow, that, that's kind of you, Tommy. Thank you. <laughs> no, no problem. All right, Bones, definitely want to get you out of there. Do you want to give anybody a shout-out before we let you go? Well, I, I will say this. Uh, we were talking golf in the early part of uh, our interview here, Tommy, and I know you don't have much much um, time in terms of the weather in the Boston area, but please tell D.L. Jenkins that uh, I'll be gunning for him. I'd love to get out there on the course with him if that's possible. Well, I think that if that's the case, the Celtics have to be a little more competitive than they are. Well, hopefully that will be the case fairly soon, but uh... – Get an NBA Finals back here in Boston. I don't know how much we'll have to say about that, but I think we'd be able to see you here again. I'd love to be there. All right. Once again, that was Brent Barry of NBA TV. Took a run at his uh, colleague there, Charles Barkley. And that was, that, that was, that was without me sort of egging him on. He, he brought that up on his own. I appreciate the honesty as always. And I hope they're cool with it because I actually remember uh, Brent once actually gave me a gift of an autographed Celtic shirt, of all things, that had Charles Barkley's autograph on it, and Magic Johnson, a very nice thing that he did for me. So I assume that they're pretty good friends, and uh, that's something they can say to each other. But definitely a passionate defense of analytics and advanced sabermetrics by uh, Brent there. And, it's, and that's really good, I think, to see from players, or, or in Brent's case, ex-players, that... You know, because a lot of athletes are always going to tout the standard line of, oh, well, you know, you got to go out there and play the game. And, and, you know, the numbers can only, you know, tell so much. And they think that it's all them. And obviously it, it, it is. They, they're the ones who put, put the ball in the basket, put the ball in the net, hit the ball out of the ballpark, get the ball into the end zone and whatnot. But I'm just, I think it's nice <laughs> to see someone, an athlete who's very open-minded to it. You know, obviously... Uh, Bones was exposed to it firsthand in Houston at the end of his career in 2009. And we know how much the San Antonio Spurs value at, as they were winning championships uh, throughout this, these past 15 years. And, and Brent was on two of their title teams himself in 2005 and 2007. 
And he really gave us some nice firsthand experience of how teams actually utilize it because we're here in the dark, and the only way that we can really see what they're doing is is through books or or through columns on on websites like Grantland or even like Business Insider if you really want to dig deep. But as I stated earlier, it's really nice to see that him and along with some other players have this open mind to it. And I'm not here also to rip on Charles Barkley because in his defense— I actually kind of understand why players and and former athletes have a bit of a resentment to it, you know, because these are the guys that work hard, and I can see why they don't like having the people who implement these advanced numbers to the coaching staff or to management, uh, because, like I said, it's a lot. It's pretty hard work to be an athlete, not just the professional level, but any level. You know, you know, a, a player, an athlete, they work very hard. They train their body vigorously in the gym. There's endless amounts of practice, tedious film study. And then over there, there's those four eyes, you know, looking at you and portraying you to their employees as, as nothing more than a chess piece. An entity whose output and value can be predicted or predicated through an algorithm, through a computer. So it's easy to develop a sense of envy and even a sense of hate that I guess Charles has himself. But we cannot deny how much this is there. I touched upon it in my piece on cognitive enhancement, nutrition, and physical training a few weeks ago. And as long as it's really been in the mainstream, especially since the release of Moneyball like 12 years ago now, we're actually still in the very early stages of this revolution because there's just every year it seems like there's a new breakthrough where it delivers just endless amounts of data to teams and to everyone who pays for these services to get to make sure that it's available to them. And we still really don't even know how to entirely to use it. And as smart as intelligence as these MIT and Harvard grads are, it's definitely an interesting subplot to subplot, excuse me, to follow not just in the NBA and not just in sports, but the world, right? I mean, this is, uh, in a way, this is Big Brother. This is how they analyze us, so to speak. And uh, maybe this isn't 1984 after all. Maybe we have Big Brother here to, uh, it's actually going to save us all. So we're very thankful for these, quite frankly, special individuals, these very hardworking individuals who create these breakthroughs, not just for these professional sports teams, but for all of us to improve basically our everyday daily lives. So we should be very grateful for it. And uh, I'm also very grateful that Brent Barry took the time once again to join us. One thing I didn't really get a touch upon with Brent because he was so short on time with it being All-Star Weekend and all, and we're ever so thankful for allowing you know a noted figure in NBA All-Star Weekend, the 1996 slam dunk champion himself, stopping by. But we talked Warriors, we talked Hawks, and it got me wondering. I mean, a lot of people, they like to complain about how the NBA is too predictable. That's not the case this year. And not only is it unpredictable, but there's a fresh crop of title contenders in small markets nonetheless. I mean, look at this. We got Atlanta, we got Cleveland, we got Memphis, Portland, the Bay Area. And the Spurs, uh, they've been around for the last 15 years now, but it's still flipping San Antonio. It's not Los Angeles. It's not Boston. And it sure as heck isn't New York. Uh, Chicago is decent, but no one really is calling them a championship contender this year, especially with their troubles. So I ask, and I wanted to ask Brent this, and I might as well ask the audience, do you consider this good for the NBA? And if you want to respond to that question, feel free to log on to our Google Plus page, Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio. Add us to your circles. We'll add you back. And tell us whether you think this fresh crop of good teams is beneficial for the NBA. 
We like your point. We'll give you tickets to see the Celtics take on Jeff Green and the Memphis Grizzlies in March. If you're asking me, you know what? I say it is. It helps broaden the NBA game because while it's growing exponentially globally, I'd say it's stagnated here in terms of interest nationally. And this allows the league to get their name to be mainstream, quite frankly, again, in markets that it once had in the 80s and the 90s. Even as those teams weren't good, you still had a very compelling league with Bird, Magic, Jordan, and those other really great players of all time. But now that they have good teams to root for, fans can develop emotional attachments to their team and thus probably develop emotional attachments to the league. So... On this show, on Celtics Beat, yes, we're sad that the Celtics aren't there right now, but I'm confident they'll be back. And what's transpiring now in the NBA is is for the greater good. So there's my take on that. And by the way, it'd be prudent of me to mention, as you know, we're more than 85% into the show, that it is All-Star Weekend, and there's obviously a lot going on down there in New York. All-Star Weekend may not be what it once was, but that's more so because guys like Wilkins, Webb, Jordan, Bird, Hodges, Vince Carter, you could name it, those guys set the standards so high years and years ago that we are naturally inclined to say, ah, this stuff isn't as good as it was back in the day. But like I said, that's because the bar was set at a ludicrously high level. They spoiled us. Uh, There's still a lot going on down there this weekend. Obviously, the game is later tonight. Still a lot of interest in it. And I'd be remiss not to mention to our audience that to get live, up-to-date coverage of NBA All-Star Weekend, give that guy again, yes, Jared Weiss. Give him a follow on Twitter, at CLNS Jared Weiss. That's at CLNS underscore J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S for live coverage, exclusive photos and content and videos that will also be available on the YouTube channel, by the way. Yes, youtube.com slash Radio. Once again, I cannot recommend this enough. Please subscribe to get everything delivered right to your browser. It's worth it no matter what level you are as an observer of the NBA or a fan. You like this show, you'll probably like our YouTube channel and our YouTube videos and the work that Jared does because, quite frankly, they drive much of the content on this show. So I strongly suggest checking out those outlets And there's going to be a return to normalcy on the YouTube channel with some Celtics coverage in a few weeks, or very soon, actually. But until that game is played later tonight, it's all-star coverage to your heart's content, NBA coverage to your heart's content, which you may like because right now we only have a few minutes left in this show and just five minutes to go around the NBA in five. So let's do this. LeBron James voted VP of the Players Association. What do I make of that? I don't really know. The guy doesn't have a college degree. And he's going to be one of your main guys bargaining for the rights and even the currency of the players. I guess he's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of authority. He's LeBron James. Uh, I don't want to be rude and question his intellectual level, but, I mean, he's basically known just for playing basketball. And I highly doubt that he's once he's finished playing his games, he's going home at night and, and studying Benjamin Franklin or, or the Socratic methods of arguing or whatnot. So... I, I don't know, really know what to make of it. I, I'd like LeBron James on my basketball team any day. He's one of the five best players in NBA history, in my opinion. Not sure I want him even negotiating a $5 bill, let alone millions and millions of dollars for my peers. Well, they're not, they're not my peers, but they're his peers. So I guess it could be good for NBA ownership, but not so great for the players. Because other players, Goran Dragic's made available by the Phoenix Suns. They were asking price as a first-round draft choice, according to the Journal Sentinel, which is based out in Wisconsin. 
there was a lot of talk about him last year, but he's actually declined a little bit this year. I know he's in a, in a not the best situation with all the guards they have down there in Phoenix. But he is a little older. He has some miles on him now. He's been asked to do a lot these last few years. And his numbers are down across the boards. And for a guy who's going to be a free agent, that's something that you don't really want to see. And speaking of his free agency, the Lakers are willing to offer him four years and $80 million. Is this their free agent target that, target that we've been hearing about now for the Lakers for the past few years, that they're going to get somebody big? He's not really going to do anything. What's he going to improve that team by three wins and make them, what, they're probably on pace to win about 25, 26 games, make them maybe a team that could challenge for 30? That's not really something that's going to do anything. Out there in Utah as well, Eans Cantor's demanding a trade. Uh, who? Well, not, not who. He was a high lottery pick, but he hasn't done any, not much. He's a good, solid, burly, big man. Would I like him on the Celtics? Yes. Is that something that I really had in mind as the Celtics have been accumulating these assets over the last year and a half? No. I know Sherrod Blakely tweeted out that the Celtics are quote-unquote monitoring the situation but have no interest now, which basically means that they have no interest unless they can get the guy for absolutely nothing, which obviously Utah won't do. So I don't really, I don't really make much of that because, quite frankly, I'm amazed at these players who haven't really done all that much in the league besides produce just enough for us to really notice them on our fantasy teams or something, that they have the gall to request trades just a few years into his career. I think Cantor's been in the league now I think, since like 2010, which is, what, yesterday. So for it's just laughable to me that for someone who did, has not done much or has not contributed to any winning team whatsoever, for him to just demand a trade from the team and say, I want to go to this team. Paul George is someone who has done something this league. He's taken his team to the Eastern Conference Finals the last two years, but he had a gruesome leg injury over the summer. Very unfortunate situation. Is now actually looking at a return in mid-March. Not really looking at it, but it's a goal that he set. Paul, please don't do it. There's no really worth. It's not worth running the risk. You have to get back into game shape just to get the players, Pacers, back into the playoffs. There's a good chance you can hurt yourself again. I don't see any reason as to why he'll do it. Take at least a full year off. Really get... It's not just physically. It's mentally, too. Mentally getting that block away from you. That's something that's going to take a long time. So try to look maybe at next fall. Come back. I think he'll be fine after that. Want to touch upon this briefly here. Kevin Durant said the players need to say in the MVP vote. I'm all for it. These peers, they know each other probably better than anybody else. There's some who probably say that they could be biased, but don't tell me that the media who votes for these players as well, that they're also biased. So I think it brings a pretty interesting angle into a very you know, prestigious award by having the uh, players who they go up against one, each, against one another vote for set awards. So I think this could be more than beneficial to getting the right winner. And lastly, this is obviously a very sad situation. We have to touch on this. First supported by Peter Vesey our good friend who appear, takes his time to appear on this show on numerous occasions. Very, very sad. Anthony Mason obviously had the heart attack this past week. And we all know of Anthony Mason's situation. He, I think, is something like north 350 pounds. He's still not even 50 years old yet. And this is something that obviously is an issue that we really don't talk about. And it's once because once these guys retire, well, we don't care for them anymore, right? They're, they're not doing anything for us. You know, we loved Anthony Mason as a player. He was very gritty and hardworking. But it's very sad seeing these, these athletes fall out of shape at the end of their careers. Well-oiled machines in their careers. But they, but they think they can just eat anything. And 
and they kill themselves during their careers because they work so hard. But you know, once they stop working out and they continue to eat junk and they not take care of themselves, they lose it quick. So that's just a message to everybody. Always take care of yourself. Take care of your body. You have one life. We're all one heartbeat away. So just be vigilant or else. You know, I hate to come down with that kind of ultimatum, but we definitely wish Anthony Mason the best. And once again, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the show because that's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Will Rock, Chuck Dietz, Astrovex, and Steph Legrateau. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat, and you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show as well as our Google Plus page. I'd like to thank our guest, Brent Barry of NBA TV, as well as our sponsor, lynda.com, for making this all possible. For our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, and myself, the executive producer and host of Celtics Beat, I'm Larry H. Russell. See you this Sunday for another edition of Celtics Beat, heard exclusively on CLNS Radio.